Welcome to a Kurt Vonnegut's mini-sode. We're doing another From the Group. I'm Alex Schmidt, and I'm here as always with Michael Swain. Very special episode. Think of it as an all-meat episode. No filler. All-meat, all-mailbag. Denny's Grand Slam of episodes. <laughs> I'll be talking like this, apparently. <laughs> no, it's great to be here, Alex. Yeah, yeah. Kurt Vonnegut rules. I'm glad we... <laughs> He does, and uh, you guys who listen to the show, Arvana friends, you do too. I'm glad we uh, were able to find the time to do another. We've done this once before where we, mm-hmm. uh, early in the show, we would just bake it into the episode. We'd say, let's look at a few p- things people wrote us. Then we were like, let's just make it its own mini-sode. And now we're doing another one because we've got a lot of cool thoughts and ideas and questions from you guys to go over. And thank you um, for those. Yeah. Before we get any further. <laughs> one uh, one up top to hit, possibly, is that uh, when we did Sirens of Titan and also some other books involving astronomy, uh, it's come up a few times. People are like, hey, you guys didn't quite explain title locking in exactly the specific way we would like, or you were wrong. And I think we might have been... I'm, I'm sloppy with astronomy sometimes. So in Sirens of Titan, they make... Mercury fully tidal locked to the sun where it has a sun side and a no sun side. A dark side, you could probably call it if you're a scientist. Uh, That is not accurate. It does rotate a little bit. It is gravitationally locked to the sun, but it does have a day in, I think it's about an Earth two years, something like that. I should have been more specific about looking that up, but it rotates a little bit. So that's a, a thing that is different from Kurt Vonnegut. Also, in oh, the notes... You're correcting scientific inaccuracies with vague things. Yep. Like, yep, yep, yep. I'm very good at this. It turns out that wasn't true, so just to nail it down, I think it's something like this. <laughs> but you're closer than me. I thought title locking was just why I can't listen to Jay-Z music on Spotify. Oh! Um, yeah, but I actually love... Because, you know, we're big nerds. So thank you to all the people who write in and actually say, like, I'm this kind of scientist. In case you were wondering, here's all the real information about that thing. Okay, I've got it in front of me here. Mercury is in a three to two spin orbit resonance, which means that it rotates three times for every two revolutions around the sun. So there's no side of Mercury that never sees the sun. It Mm -hmm. is rotating enough that it's just that it is a situation where often a lot of Mercury will see the sun for a lot of days in a row. Right. And it slowly transitions around. Are there any moons or... (laughs) I'm going to expand the question to the point where you couldn't possibly know. (laughs) I'm acting like you should know. I'm like, are there any moons in the solar system that are tidally locked or planetary bodies that are tidally locked? Yeah, so it's a thing where... He knows! How did he know? Because I'm I'm trying. Uh, The moon is tidally locked. And it appears not to be some of the time, but that's because of a phenomenon called libration. And libration is a perceived oscillating of the moon, which is actually based on slight changes in the moon's apparent size when viewed from Earth. So we do always see the same face of the moon? Like that's why we all see the man and the moon or whatever? From what I read, apparently we never saw the dark side of the moon until we sent people to the moon and they went there. Yeah. I knew, I understand the concept of the dark side of the moon, obviously, but I thought it just referred to whichever side was facing away at that time. I didn't know the moon was tidally locked. That's awesome. So that's a a thing that- We have a freak moon. (laughs) I was wrong about before, vague about a minute or two ago, and now I think we've got it. Yep. Really Uh, really narrowed in on it. Yeah. And also, when I was reading about tidal locking, the Googling I I found, it said that a lot of pre-1960s writers were wrong about it. So in Sirens of Titan, when Kurt is wrong about it, apparently other authors were wrong about it, too. People just didn't understand uh, Mercury. Yeah, it wasn't his fault at the time. He was using, like, whatever scientific 
knowledge was popular, right? Yeah, but and it's just like he was messing with planetary uh, facts sure. all the time in that book, so he didn't care. Um, Don't so, truth yeah. me, Alex. <laughs> Don't you truth me. Um, and from there, let's look at some specific uh, one person sent us kind cool. of things. Uh, Mac Kelly emailed us a theory about flying and lucid dreaming in Douglas Adams's work. And he basically argues that a lot of Douglas Adams' work is about flying and lucid dreaming. And specifically that like the parts where a character is flying are expressions of times when someone would be lucid dreaming in real life and trying to capture what that's like. Which is a cool thing. I don't lucid dream, so I didn't I had never read that into Douglas Adams, but maybe it's there. I don't dream, period. So neither did I. <laughs> I don't I haven't had a dream I that I recalled. I'm oh, sure that's I not do. a bit. That's... No, no, no. I haven't oh. had a dream that I recalled since I was nine years old. I, I actually envy that other people have extra movies in their head at oh, night. Man. I only have blankness. <laughs> like oh, my no. sleep time is just lost time to me. I wonder. I wonder if you're a very creative person. I wonder if particularly creative people, maybe that's common. Yeah, at I don't least know. among some. Because then you want to like make stuff in your waking time. The only time I did is I was briefly on Wellbutrin a couple of years ago, and it immediately, which is a known side effect, made me have vivid nightmares every night. Oh no! And I actually waited a while to go <laughs> off it because never having remembered a dream for like 18 years, it was just a novelty to have. Even if they were scary <laughs> and bad, it was a, such a novelty to have dreams. It was cool. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. It's like you know you're on a horror movie set and you, right. you never get to be on movie sets. So but, the, the slasher's coming and you're like, oh, it's cool. Yeah. Ah, it wore off after two weeks of only nightmares. I was like, ah, I'd rather go back to the channel with nothing on it. I mean, I'll take any excuse to reread Hitchhiker's Guide, so I will now reread it through this lens. Yeah, that's yeah. a cool thing. But I can't speak at length about the theory because I don't know from dreams. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, also, I wonder if you could build a fan theory out of like that very first chunk of the book is real life. And then it's all a dream after that, like the earth being destroyed and Ford Prefect removing him. Because and... yeah, Douglas Adams also, as he got later in the series to like book six, book seven, he took shit back. Like he would change because, <laughs> yeah, Trillian and Arthur at some point go back to the coordinates where earth is. And the big twist of that book is it's there. And they're like, how can this be here? And uh, I forget all the details because he's endlessly imaginative. But Oh, that's awesome. I mean, that's the ultimate recommended reading. God, Hitchhiker, if you haven't read Hitchhiker's Guide. It's really great. Yeah. If you like these, yeah. Well, it's just so. If you like Vonnegut and comedy, you will like that. <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guide specifically is so balls out delightful. Yeah. It reads like watching a sketch. Like it's it goes yeah, so yeah. it just flows over you and there's a joke every line. It's great. Yeah, it's like it's almost like a Python movie where just sketches happen all the time. Totally. It hangs in the air exactly the way bricks don't. <laughs> <laughs> like shit like that, where you're like, Jesus, that's a joke that couldn't be in a movie. It can only be in writing and it's fucking brilliant. Yeah. yeah, the one I, the one I, my favorite one is when the guy is there to demolish his house at the very beginning, and it turns out he's an, a descendant of I think it's Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan, as Dan and, Carlin taught me, it's pronounced. Oh, Genghis. Genghis right. Khan. And the guy just keeps having a feeling like he should be wearing a furry hat. And like keeps imagining <laughs> mounted warriors laughing at him. He should be slaughtering people <laughs> and shit, but he doesn't. He doesn't know why he has these feelings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I just love that character. Yeah, and Mr. Prosser. And it's what four pages in. It's amazing. Yeah. Let's look at a, another note somebody sent us. This is from Charles Oaten, O-A-T-T-E-N. And he wrote us a really lovely note. We'll just read it. In light of the Slaughterhouse episode coming up, it, it's been a bit since we did these. I felt compelled to share with you how that book has touched my life. I lost my left arm in a car crash a little over a year ago, and I was pretty mm. devastated. The question why repeated in my head nearly all day for a few months. Fair enough. This book is what finally pulled me back to reality in a way, particularly the passage that says, to paraphrase, 
Why? That's a very earthling question. Why you? Why us for that matter? Why anything? Here we are, Mr. Pilgrim, trapped in the amber of this moment. There is no why. Which I thought was a really, I don't know, that was a really cool note. And I would imagine a lot of people have been able to draw that kind of perspective, in particular from Slaughterhouse. Yeah. Because so it goes. Just proof that Vonnegut's work has changed lives, as Charles says. Keep spreading the word and having funny, entertaining conversations. We will try. Yeah, yeah. That was very nice of him. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I agree. Uh, When our Facebook page for this first launched, that was the quote we went with for the very first image was the, here we are in the amber this moment. There is no why. Yeah. Definitely a cornerstone Vonnegutism. Huge, yeah. Uh, And I think a cornerstone of existential philosophy to accept that, that there's no plan. You know, there's a lot of ways in which life in which there's two kinds of people. And one is there's the people who've convinced themselves there's a plan. And there's the people who are trying to cope with the fact that there doesn't seem to be a plan. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that really, it changes your entire life, whether you go the one way or the other way. That's it. Let's look at another. This is a this is a tip from my friend Alex Coulomb. Hi, Alex. How you doing? Hi, Alex. He pointed me to a story called uh, They're Made Out of Meat, which is by the science fiction writer Terry Bisson. Which he thought was very Vonnegut-y, and I agree because he's such he has such a detached alien view of us. And the story is about aliens coming upon humans and being terrified that we are made of meat, that we're <laughs> like a carbon-based life form. Uh, and it's a really great short, quick story that is online. It's on TerryBisson.com, uh, so you can read that. It's really great, and and it, it was I thought it was a great tip, and it also pointed me to another short story that I talk about in the Galapagos episode. Nessa Garza. Asked if we do shout outs to fans. No. Again, usually not. Sorry, that's yeah. a pass. Yeah. Hey, Alan Hyde. <laughs> Alan Hyde suggested that in addition to Billy uh, in addition to Billy Pilgrim and Elliot Rosewater being ciphers, which I take to mean like they're basically just Kurt. Yeah, or uh, Or actually, I'm sorry, that they're like empty inside, right? Yeah, that no. they're empty and they're just moved through the plot to make the plot work, yeah. In he, some ways. He thinks Unk is one too. Yeah. I disagree. Ooh. You agree? Um, yeah, I mean, it's only a temporary state with Unk. Okay, I guess we're just getting yeah. technical. But I would agree maybe, and maybe, so I guess he's right. I would agree that Unk is. I wouldn't agree that Malachi is, if that yeah, makes sense. Yeah, for sure. Malachi feels like a fully fleshed out character with flaws and positive attributes. And then Unk does become a cipher, but that's only, he literally had his brain wiped out. That's the definition of a cipher. I mean, the guy in Memento is a cipher. Right. Anyone who has no memories is a cipher. <laughs> but I would argue that I don't think Unk is used structurally in the same way that Billy is or Elliot is. No, yeah, it's a He different... makes choices that drive the plot. And he used to be Malachi, which is an important distinction. And Malachi was a very particular personality with lots of individual traits. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because Elliot, uh, Elliot and Billy both kind of collapse in their lives but they weren't that distinct or at least not that hard charging before that either so yeah i think it is it is different from unk where he was previously malachi who was playboying around and and then also a lot of unk's significance comes from how he used to be that what i love about unk is he's like the reverse of matthew mcconaughey where his hero is him from 10 years ago (laughs) he reads the letter or him five years ago but yeah just the idea that unk becomes his own authority figure because of course he's unaware that he is malachi that's so neat to me and i think that keeps him from being a cipher he's a cipher in that he is totally turning over his agency to another entity but unbeknownst to him that entity is him right so he's not really a cipher he's taking orders from himself yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's a cool that's a cool 
it's the best thing to one. try to it's pull. my favorite one <laughs> yeah and, and also that's a cool thing by alan to try to pull out that pull at that thread of our ciphers in mm-hmm. many of the books because at least in some level they are in a lot of them i think yeah kurt is not interested in like detailed character studies where the big takeaway is that you intimately know this person and they feel real right characters are there to represent that type of person and serve their purpose for sure yeah yeah it's not yeah. dickens where you're like I just find out <laughs> details about Miss Havisham. This is, a, this is sort of just a cool historical thing. Abby Michalowski points out that there was a state of Salo, S-A-L-O, in World War II. And it was the Nazi puppet state in northern Italy. She thinks Kurt Vonnegut might be referencing it somehow by putting a robot in the Sirens of Titan named Salo. It was the Republic of Salo, and it was named after a town called Salo in Italy where the capital of it was. But it was sort of the rump Italian state that the Nazis created when they conquered part of it. I'm not super scanning what a ref what that reference could mean if it's intentional, do you? No, it's yeah, it's hard to pick out. Um I mean, I guess if it was a it was once a free state and it became a, pu- Nazi, a puppet of the Nazis. Oh yeah, that that might be it actually. So maybe yeah. just cuz Salo's the puppet of the Tralfamadorians and they're doing something we don't like ultimately. Well, because also we got to see a play version of Sirens of Titan in L.A. Mm -hmm. uh, put on uh, very wonderfully. And the director and dramaturg, Ben and Alicia Rock. Hi, guys. uh, They they picked out a lot of general connections between World War II and the Sirens of Titan that I don't think I had ever scanned before and then and made uh, the Rumfords into Roosevelt's FDR and, and Eleanor. So I could see that that makes it a little tricky to be like, yeah, and the Roosevelts were mean to the Italian rump state. Doesn't make sense. <laughs> but if there but that connection makes me think it is more of a more of a likelihood that he connected the robot to the Italian state because he was doing a World War II thing. Because I mean Salo says you'll see how horribly I've been used. Yeah, yeah. And I mean that's a puppet state, right? And an agency acting as a puppet. Yeah. Salo would make a cute puppet. You could mass produce a good Salo puppet. I think that would sell. That'd be such a good, especially like a toy for dogs. Yeah. Uh, we have a couple Pooty Wheat opinions. Yeah, yeah. Tyler Kirby thinks Pooty Wheat is an expression that the universe gives no fucks about us. <laughs> and Sam Wagner says the Pooty Wheat birds are a metaphor for people who write about massacres, helpless observers. Yeah. Wow. Which is a cool thought. Those are, they can't both be true, but either could be true <laughs> and they both work. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, they're both totally like I doubt, cogent. I doubt he meant both at once. <laughs> yeah, well, also, Vonnegut liked to write about himself so much sure. that I could see the massacre observer thing tying to that. It's like maybe like the pooty weed birds are just saying, you can't do shit, just whistle. Yeah. Because you can't affect anything. Or as Tyler says, that's the one I read instinctively, is that it's just the an iteration of the universe saying, I just make noises. Like, it means nothing. I have no plan. I don't care. Yeah. But uh, but I like that twist that it could be also, maybe the birds do care, but what can they do? Just sing. That's all they can do, you know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> At E. Vogland, V-O-G-L-A-N-D, on Twitter, linked us to, obviously we're not going to play them now, but I recommend checking them out. They're cool. Yeah. Commercials Kurt Vonnegut did for coffee and for Discover cards. Yep, and they're just straight yeah. up commercials. So it's just so funny when you're like, yeah, reading these very deep, very intimate, personal things about how we should live our lives, and then you're like, he also did a Jeep commercial. Check it out. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta yeah. live. Got to make that cheddar. 
Because I, well, I think the version of that most people know is his cameo in the movie Back to School. But mm-hmm. like, this is even more just, he's just, like, I think he did that cameo for fun. He did these commercials to make some money and and maybe to be more notorious. I don't really know. But yeah, they're ju- it's just weird to like, yeah, Kurt Vonnegut loves this coffee. Drink Kurt <laughs> yeah. coffee. That's it. Bob Dylan's driving an SUV. Who would have thunk it? <laughs> um, there's also, there's a note here from uh, Kevin Carroll that we got on Facebook. He's talking about Sirens of Titan and Slaughterhouse-Five, and he says that in Sirens, the Trelfs, which is a fun abbreviation for the aliens, the Trelfs are manipulating humanity con- to convey messages. This implies a form of time travel, though likely limited, like by exploiting faster-than-light travel and time dilation. And if you can manipulate the past, then events in time are not static. The development of that fuel would essentially invalidate the current timeline, so Slaughterhouse-Five's Trelfamidorians could be the same as Sirens of Titan's Trelfamidorians if the end of the universe was actually just the end of that timeline <laughs> which is fun because we've talked before about how in sirens and slaughterhouse five trelfamidorians are different things they're aliens but they're completely differently composed one's organic one's ma- a machine it's very different they're like an evolved technology yeah yeah uh that's a cool like bifurcating timelines approach to making those both be in one universe and that must have come from the fact that we were saying how it's hard to link those right like yeah trelfamidorians both exist but the world ends in both of those books, so how can they both be in the same filmic universe, so to speak? And this yeah. is great. He's saying, well, yeah, look, the Tralfamidorians kept uh, – they literally are using a ray that controls events that are farther than light speed away from them. That's a form of time travel. Yeah. Let's say that kaleidoscopes the timelines. Now you can have Tralfamidorians ending the world as many times as you want in alternate dimensions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Also, and if they're aware that process is happening, that would make them even less worried about the world ending. Right. And like when they say stuff like, yes, one of our pilots will eventually destroy the universe, maybe they mean the multiverse. So when when the when the normal universe ends in one of the books, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're referring to the same event as when they wipe out all of existence, which to them might be more complex than just the one universe we perceive. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? <laughs> I honestly think it's, fun it's bullshit. Trip, it's right? Great. Like, yeah. Kurt just used them again and didn't <laughs> care to explain it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jay Overton says, I was listening to an old BBC interview with Kurt recently about Slaughterhouse-Five, in which, upon being questioned about Billy's lapses in time between Tralfamador and whatnot, he describes one of its functions as giving the reader a break from the heaviness of the novel. So and that's just interesting to think of what he was thinking. Yeah. Because obviously in his other books, I think with his other books as a guide— I didn't know he was worried about being too heavy. Read Breakfast of Champions. It doesn't seem like he's trying to, like, not be too heavy. <laughs> yeah, for real. Like, <laughs> so it's funny that in Slaughterhouse, I think probably because it really happened to him, he's like, the firebombing of Dresden is so sweepingly depressing. Yeah, he can't get away from I'm, that. I have, to, I have to alternate with some funny scenes or, like, scenes where he's having sex in space. That's not depressing, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> Well, also, I, I read a letters of note thing the other day where it was Ray Bradbury answering a fan's questions, and the fan asked him how much he thinks about symbolism, and Ray Bradbury said, I don't think about it. It bogs you down too much creatively if you're trying to bake in a bunch of symbolism all the time. And I feel like we see a lot of symbolism in those sort of time jumps, and uh, you just call them crazy parts of Slaughterhouse-Five. And he may not have thought that much about the symbolic weight of them. He might have just been writing what made sense to him, and then we find that later. Yeah, it can go either way for yeah. sure. 
well, like Kubrick would be the opposite, right? Right. Every symbol is was discussed at length and shot eight different ways until it was the exact symbol he wanted. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and then I, there's I, all I, kinds yeah. of writers who you're like, there's no doubt that this symbol works, and they can honestly say, okay, maybe so, but I didn't put it in there consciously. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, and, and every writer's different, and sure. I think Kurt did a lot of symbolism in it. But yeah, it's a weird balance. Yeah. There's something that has to be intentional. Like when he compares the dad, uh, I'm sorry, in Cat's Cradle to a turtle, that's like, yeah. there's no way that's not an intentional symbol. But then you have to imagine some percentage of them just cropped up and were just like part of his DNA. Yeah, yeah. We also, we get a lot of messages specifically about Sirens of Titan and about Slaughterhouse-Five. Those seem to be either They're ones standouts. people love the most and or books with so many different moving parts and amazing concepts that it's just worth thinking about forever. Yeah, whereas I, I'm a su- little surprised about Sirens. Maybe it's because I've been pushing it so hard from the beginning. But <laughs> I thought his big ones were Slaughterhouse, Breakfast, and Cat's Cradle. We don't get as many Cat's Cradle questions as I thought we would. Maybe because Cat's Cradle is so crystal clear that if you've read Cat's Cradle, you're like, I get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's less uh, – Sirens has more interpreting to it than Cat's Cradle for sure. Yeah. Oh, actually, one one other thing I want to hit about Sirens of Titan. Sam Wagner sent this to us on Facebook. Uh, this relates to symbolism and what means what. Sam says, hey, guys, I was talking to my dad about books and such, and Sirens of Titan came up. He grew up in Indiana in the 50s and 60s, and he thinks that Malachi waiting at a bus stop so long that he died is a jab at Indianapolis's terrible bus system during that time, which he thinks is the funniest part of the book. So their transit must have been pretty bad. I know it's way out of order, but I thought it was worth sharing. So he thinks that it, that ending, which yeah. which we've puzzled over endlessly, is like a local joke about the city of Indianapolis having bad public transit. Maybe. Dad might be projecting a little bit his own life experience onto the events. I find that amazing. As yeah, an if it is it's true. It's really good. And then he waited for the Indianapolis bus so long he died. Yeah. I get it. I'm from there. <laughs> mayor Jones or whatever is the worst. Yeah. Worst mayor. <laughs> If you're in so inclined, because, you know, he loves talking about nukes, Will Michaels linked on our Facebook page the Kurt, at Kurt Vonnegut. Just go to Facebook, search Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah. Um, there was a really cool link that has all the declassified meetings that led up to the decision to drop the A-bomb. Yeah. Which I knew uh, I knew some of the history of what happened in those meetings, but these are like transcripts, which is pretty cool to read if you're into history to that degree. Yeah. And into the idea of... What were the people thinking? What were their arguments for and against unveiling the most devastating weapon anyone had ever imagined and made? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What did they literally say? And did it convince the other person? Wow. You know, it's interesting to break it down. So that's a really cool link. A lot of Vana fans post amazing links. So it's worth going to the Facebook just to click through to other stuff. Yeah, it's a really great discussion board. There's a lot. Yeah, Yeah. a lot to see. Yeah. One uh, one piece of work to talk about, but a few th- people have sent us things about Happy Birthday Wanda June. Um, Talia Ruth Deborah Levin sent us Don't on read Facebook. This one. <laughs> no, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> that uh, ha- that the Wanda June cake reminds her of the song MacArthur Park, which is a song that has lyrics about a cake being in the rain and getting rained on. Fine. Yep. I'm sorry. I don't understand what our rubric is. <laughs> For comments that are so stimulating, we want to bring them to the group. <laughs> if someone can just post, hey. cake, cake, there's a song with cake. cake it song. reminded me of that. Cake song. Nothing against Talia, 
Very grateful she listened and posted. I'm mad at you for thinking people wanted to hear that comment. <laughs> I want to work in some works that aren't a couple of them. Absolutely. You know? uh, well, in that case, well, Matt Quentin Bowes writes, <laughs> is that Michael laughing on the Netflix Dave Chappelle special? Yeah. Yes, it is. The L.A. one, right? Because they put out two. One's in Texas, one is in L.A. And a mm-hmm. lot of the crowd reaction shots are you and Jen. Yeah, uh, my girlfriend and I laughing a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I'm something of a mentor to Dave, so he wanted me there. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> uh, there's all, Well, because there's one other happy birthday one June thing. This is from Hunter Sanders. He sent this to us over email. Also, Hunter made I'm a sorry. wonderful piece of fan art of us, which is, is great. Isn't that a character from Venture Brothers? Hunter Sanders? No, that's Hunter Gathers. Okay. <laughs> Hunter Sanders, you're close to me not believing you were a real person, but you squeaked by. Yeah. Yeah, what oh, does he Hunter did, say? He did that fan art of us with Monica. It's a collage thing. Oh, nice. I love yeah, yeah. that. Yeah. Which is fantastic. Um, he said over email, I think the idea that Harold in Happy Birthday Wanted June announces the ends of acts may be a sign of his need to control and have the last word but also potentially to hint at the ridiculous self-myth or narrative that those types of people have to create for themselves to be satisfied with who they are. Of it, course. Yeah, if you haven't followed that episode... I'm dumb. That's the right interpretation. The, uh, the, <laughs> it's a play, Happy Birthday, Wanna June, and the act breaks get announced from the stage by the character of Harold Ryan. He just tells you the act's over. Who's a monster, like a misogynist, yeah. yeah. A terrible control. Trying to control everyone. Masculine yeah. monster, yeah. So, of course. And that's a cool interpretation. He wants the last word. Duh. That yeah. makes total sense. Yeah. Thank you, Hunter. <laughs> no thank you Alex mm-hmm. yeah. I see someone linked us to a flying fuck at the moon gif and but then they say don't worry it's not a sex gif I'm still not going to click on it <laughs> it's actually <laughs> what so, is it so it's uh, basically a, a remote control airplane kind of thing uh-huh. but it looks like a big penis and they just throw it into the air it's like made of wood oh okay through yeah. a donut no, and it no, doesn't. It it's doesn't taking go a flying anything. fuck at the moon. I see. Yeah, it's like they put a motor <laughs> into a big cardboard penis. Sure, and it Haven't flies we around. All? So that's fun. Yeah, uh, and you know that exists. Now you, you know, know radio. You know, you guys, let's destigmatize this. It's normal. It happens to every dude. You get a little older. You got to put a motor in your penis. It's not <laughs> something to be ashamed of. Yeah, it's, you know, keeps it going. <laughs> Technology is real. Don't be a luddite. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I have. I think I have three more things to hit. All right. I'm closing my computer and actively listening to these three things. <laughs> uh, oh, no, four more. Uh, one of them. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> you broke your promise. Uh, this is a Breakfast of Champions thing. Uh, this is from Kevin Tanager. Kevin says that uh, Arthur C. Clarke's The Star is a short story by Arthur C. Clarke. Sounds exactly like Trout in Breakfast of Champions. The Trout line is, that's what the Star of Bethlehem was, you know? A whole galaxy going up like a celluloid collar. And then mm-hmm. the star is an Arthur C. Clarke short story, which is really good, where there's a, I, I might mix up the details, but there's a priest on a mission to space, and they're coming back, and basically through measuring time and relativity and how things work, he realizes that the galaxy they saw explode was the star of Bethlehem. And so yeah. the priest is asking God, like, did that whole galaxy have to die for us to get Christianity? Was that necessary? They went there because they find the ruins of an incredibly advanced alien civilization, and they yeah. find out that that alien civilization was was many, many trillions of living beings who had a robust art and culture on many planets in the galaxy. And a supernova wiped them all out brutally. And that supernova exploding was the light in the sky that the wise men followed to find Jesus. He's like, 
wait, so there is a God and he's a dick? Like, or there right. isn't a God? I don't understand. <laughs> uh, it was, I didn't actually know. It was a short story. I know that story because it was made into a great Twilight Zone episode. I literally oh. only know it from oh, the Twilight oh, oh, oh. Zone episode. I think it might have been. Yeah, yeah. 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 So cool. I didn't know that was an Arthur C. Clarke short. Yeah, yeah. Oh. And it's great. Then uh, Carl A. Salvatore sent this on face sent us this on Facebook. He said, I just got into reading Vonnegut, so I've only been listening to episodes after reading the books. But I was just doing a homework assignment for college English class and found some pretty Vonnegut-y names, the authors of a scientific paper I had to read for class. These are the names. Abigail R. Wooldridge, <laughs> Pascal Carayan, Anne Schuf's Hunt, and then Peter L.T. Hunaker. Peter L.T. Hunaker. Yeah. Lieutenant L.T. Hunaker. <laughs> That's what I thought too. Yeah. Right. It's Gats Cradle and L.T. It's Smash. Me, Lieutenant L.T. Smash. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It reminds me of one time when we were in uh, Nashville to shoot some stuff for Cracked. We drove down a road that had just a sequence of the worst business names I've ever seen to the point where I busted out pen and paper and was writing them down. <laughs> and the only two I remember off the top of my head were Mazak Optonics and Throop Systems. <laughs> T-H-R-O-O-P-F. <laughs> like what? Na- people are just like throwing a Scrabble bag at the floor and naming their company that. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Throop Systems. <laughs> the, actually, the other day I was driving and I went past, it was called Nissani Auto Sales. So it was an auto dealership run by a family called Nissani that sounds like it's a Nissan dealership. But and they it's only not. carry Saturns or something. Right, yeah. it's not yeah. Nissans. But like, it's Saturns are discontinued, what's going on? Right, so you have confused <laughs> Nissan shoppers leaving and people who don't want Nissans not even coming. They seem doomed. I hope they're okay. Uh, in San Diego, right by SDSU, <laughs> there was a Kinko's... Uh, Kinko's Copies, if you remember that, now defunct, I think, chain of they're, copy They're stores. like tied to FedEx now. It's okay, they thing. just got yeah. swallowed up. But when that Kinko's Copies went out of business, and it was replaced with a sushi place. And to save money, they call it, they just called it Kiko's Sushi in the same font, in the same <laughs> color, in the same sign as Kinko's <laughs> Copies. And so they literally have people walk in trying to make a coffee, and they're like, oh, we sell dead fish uh, now? Oh. Yeah, like, <laughs> what a weird mix-up. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a non-savings. That's yeah, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um, oh, no, I actually I only have one more, and it's uh, related to local business. Here we You're go. bad at counting how many we have left. <laughs> uh, yeah, very bad. One, two, five. Great. Um, so, if, yeah, uh, if you reach five, you've gone right <laughs> past it. <laughs> uh, this is a story from Tim Weilert of Lafayette, Colorado. He sent this, uh, this to us over email. Um, it's a story about tasting the Vonnegut family's coffee-flavored beer recipe in 2013. If you've read Palm Sunday, uh, Kurt talks a lot about his mom's side of the family ran a brewery in Indianapolis. Their beer, uh, Lieber Lager. Lieber beer, yeah. Yeah, won, won gold medals. And then the secret ingredient was coffee. That was a trick. Uh, so according to Tim, uh, he said, I figured I'd write it up and send it over, even though it's going to be a while before you get to Timequake. In Timequake, Kurt tells a little story about a trip he took to Denver in the 90s where his family beer recipe got brewed by Wincoop Brewing Company. There's a couple interesting tidbits in there, such as the fact that John Hickenlooper, owner of Wincoop at the time, is now the governor of Colorado. Wincoop was brewed this beer only a handful of times, and I was fortunate enough to get a taste in 2013. How was it? Pretty good. 
It's a Vienna-style lager, which is a type of beer that's more commonly associated with Mexico these days. Dos Equis and Negro Modelo are both oh, in the same vein. That's actually the genre of beer I prefer. Yeah, it's nice. really good. I it's like a dark this. lager, yeah. I'm a Caguama guy. <laughs> oh, I haven't had that. Is it good? Yeah, I'm sure it's good. It's good if you uh, have a very unsophisticated palate like me, so you want beer that tastes pretty close to water. It tastes pretty close to water. Okay. <laughs> I like water, though. What's wrong with water? <laughs> oh, yeah. It tastes like water that gets you drunk. <laughs> I like, um, there's another beer called Bohemia. It's like a dark lager like that, and it's really sure, good. Yeah. Um, uh, but Tim says, it had a light hoppy overtone with very subtle coffee notes, as would be expected from the description Kurt gave the beer in Timequake. And he'd personally love to see this beer make a comeback. And who knows, maybe we'll see another batch before too long. If they don't brew it and sell it at the museum, well, maybe they don't have the liquor license. But that would be a great license, thing yeah. at the Vonnegut like, Museum or library, anywhere like that. It would be cool if you could buy Lieber beer in the gift shop. Yeah, because it's the year of Vonnegut in Indianapolis in 2017. Yeah. And I guess they've been doing cocktails at local bars that are Vonnegut specific. Say this. If Andy, any Indiana brewery wants to do a short run of Lieber beer, we will promote the heck out of it on this show. Oh, yeah, yeah. Someone produce a small batch of Lieber beer and send us some. Yeah, sample. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. Send us beer. Yes. Well, I also, exactly. and I like that the current governor of Colorado made it. He's the guy who was like, we're making Vonnegut beer. We're but bringing this, it back. And he had the same name as my college pal, John Hicken. Shout out to John Hicken. Oh. Weird. What up, John Wait, Hicken? his name's John Hicken Looper? Is that yeah, right? John Hicken Looper. Maybe he's the version of my friend John Hicken after he's loopered back in time <laughs> and to become mayor or governor or whatever you said. <laughs> so he, he needed a new name and he was like, I know what'll throw him off the, well, the scent. I my, put Looper yeah. on the end of my name. My college pal, John Hicken, was brutally murdered by a shotgun blast by someone who looked identical to him, but we didn't think anything of it at the time <laughs> and then that man ran for public office he got my vote <laughs> yeah he can time travel yeah, yeah. let's make him a leader exactly he knows something <laughs> um and i think that's all the mailbag stuff for this episode you guys are amazing and thank you for sending us amazing things 